Welcome to Tisky Sour. We are talking about Suella Braverman's latest dud plan and Jeremy Corbyn. First of all, though, as I am joined by Ash Sarkar, the screens, we've got 24 hour news in the, screen, in, in the studio. It's all about Cristiano Ronaldo. I want you to explain to me what's going on. Okay, um, very quick translation is that Cristiano Ronaldo has got an ego the size of a planet and he's currently in the twilight of his football playing years, really. And every time he is at a club and he feels that he's unappreciated, he's not getting the playing time he wants, playing in the position that he wants, getting the kind of prominence and validation and like constant genuflection that he wants, he kicks up a big stink in the media. He did that the first time he wanted to leave Manchester United for Real Madrid. And he also did it at Real Madrid, where he obviously had that big falling out with, I mean, two of the best forwards in the world, Karim Benzema and Gareth Bale. So he's someone who who kind of like salts the earth wherever he goes. And any club who takes him on knows that that's going to happen. And they think that it's worth it because even when he's, you know, in, in the autumn of his career he's still a really good player and also he's just so famous and brings in so much money that he's sort of worth it for the shirt sales alone so Cristiano Ronaldo's done what he normally does which is he's decided he's being disrespected so he does an interview with Piers Morgan who is so like hilariously obsequious to Cristiano Ronaldo and has been for many years like he did have a phase of writing really nasty articles about him and then he decided he wanted nothing more than to get like an interview with him. So they sort of teamed up to do this interview and because it's with Piers Morgan on Piers Morgan Uncensored, it means that it's going to be on the front page of all of the Murdoch newspapers and puts loads of pressure on the Manchester United board. I think that the central accusation that he's been betrayed by Manchester United is not really true like yes he's not been played as often as he'd like and yes like he he's not considered a super duper integral part of the team but he's like 60 years old now like he's you know he's he's getting to an age where like nobody would be considered like a central part of the team and the team play better without him I just think it's also quite funny because it wasn't that long ago like a few matches ago that Ten Hag gave him the captain's armband and for one match and this is how Cristiano pays him so pretty funny it's like real housewives of manchester you know it's it's kind of a bit dramatic and a bit silly yeah i mean obviously the whole football element of it goes over my head but the idea that you do this tell-all interview with piers morgan for the club you currently play for i find kind of hilarious let's move on to what we're actually talking about tonight though Home Secretary Suella Braverman has signed a bold new deal with France to tackle channel boat crossings. At least that's how the government is spinning it. Mrs Braverman making the case for the new agreement. We need to uh, significantly reduce the numbers of people crossing the channel. The Prime Minister has been absolutely clear. I've been absolutely clear. that illegal migration, particularly in the numbers that we've been seeing uh, more recently, uh, is totally unacceptable. What's important is that in order to solve the problem of illegal migration on the channel, we take a multi-dimensional uh, approach. There's no single answer. There's no quick fix. There's no silver bullet. Uh, our cooperation and collaboration with the French 
on the channel, uh, on the UK coastline, on the French coastline, is absolutely integral to ensuring that there is a, a robust barrier uh, preventing people disembarking from the French beaches in the first place. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak seemed pretty excited about it too. I'm confident that we can get the numbers down, but I also want to be honest with people that it isn't a single thing that will magically solve this. We can't do it overnight, but people should be absolutely reassured that this is a top priority for me. I'm gripping it. And as I've said, in in the time that I've been Prime Minister, you're already starting to see some progress with this deal with the French, but that's just a start. There's lots more that we need to do. So this deal with the French government is a sign of the progress that Sunak has been making since he became Prime Minister. But despite all the bluff, it turns out that Suella Braverman has simply signed a slightly tweaked version of an agreement that we already had with France. That was one that was drawn up and agreed by her predecessor, Priti Patel. Now, this is a headline from The Guardian in July last year, when Patel agreed to pay £54 million to the French to clamp down on small boat crossings. That deal included a doubling of the number of police patrolling French beaches. The Guardian reported that the deal also contained these points. So it says patrols of French officers across wide areas of the northern coast between Boulogne and Dunkirk and expanded patrols further northwest around Dieppe. Deployment of wide area surveillance technology to improve coverage of the coast of France prevent crossing attempts including use of aerial surveillance. Investment in infrastructure to increase border security at the main border crossing points along the Channel Coast. So that's what the deal looked like last year. What does it look like now? Well, this headline is from The Express. Suella Braverman signs historic £62 million deal with France to increase migrant patrols by 40%. So it's looking a bit Groundhog Day already. Let's get into the details, though, of Braverman's historic deal. The Times report that it includes these targets. Investment in new port security infrastructure to prevent illegal migrants crossing the channel in lorries. More technology to help officers prevent small boats setting sail, including drones and night vision capabilities. Investment in reception and removal centres in France for migrants whose journey to the UK are disrupted. Now, odd to stop, you know, migrants crossing the channel in boats. You would try and up technology to stop them getting in lorries. Doesn't make much sense to me. But the broader point here is these are all the same. They're basically the same policies, except this deal will cost the country £7 million more. Now, the number of French patrols will go up by 40%. That's the headline that we've been told. And that's because it sounds somewhat impressive when you frame it like that. But once you learn that that's only about 80 new officers for the whole of France's northern coast, you sort of see this isn't that big a deal. Now, it's one thing to quietly roll out an old deal with a few adjustments. But the framing of this has been completely bizarre and obviously much more about the optics than the facts. This footage was broadcast on Sky. It shows Suella Braverman arriving in Paris to a wall of photographers. She meets her French counterpart, Gérald Darmanin, and the two pose for photographs as though marking a truly historic agreement. Pieces of paper are signed, and there's a solemn handshake, but over almost exactly the same deal as the one made last year. Now, perhaps this pantomime has something to do with the fact that none of these past deals with the French have worked. Over the last five years, the UK government has paid £175 million to the French to help tackle channel crossings. And they spent an initial £140 million on the Rwanda deal. But we don't know the true price because the government is refusing to disclose that. Now, those flights to Rwanda were, of course, blocked by the courts. This graph from the Times is based on MOD data. It shows how channel crossings have increased over the last three years. Between January and November 2020, there were fewer than 10,000 asylum seekers entering the country by small boat crossings. 
during the same period in 2021. The total stood at around 25,000. But since January this year, over 40,000 asylum seekers have entered the country by these incredibly dangerous routes. So why do the Tories think the same old deterrent-based policies will work now? Well, it's unclear they really do. They're not complete idiots. And presumably this announcement is to make it seem like they're doing something, and that's to appease the Tory press and right-wing MPs. Those MPs aren't all falling for it, though. This is MP for Dover, Natalie Elphick, speaking on the BBC. Well, I think, unfortunately, this new deal falls far short of what is needed to tackle the small boats crossing. And it doesn't reflect the urgency or the impact of this issue in Dover, in Kent, and indeed across the country as a whole. So what would you like to see being done? Well, I've been very clear that I think what we need is to make sure that we have British officers working alongside the French on the French beaches, stopping the boats getting in the water in the first place. And just to come in there, that's exactly what is going to happen, isn't it? British officers will be embedded on the ground. Uh, They won't be, my understanding is, in on the beaches. They won't be able to exercise operational powers in terms of uh, actually tackling the small boats crossings. Their status will be observers in the control rooms. I understand that's the basis for the agreement. We've had joint uh, controls. We've had joint intelligence now for a number of years with the French. Mm -hmm. That isn't tackling this issue. The only thing that will tackle this issue is making sure that the boats are stopped in France before they get in the water. And unfortunately, this agreement doesn't get us to where we need to be to tackle this very urgent and very serious small boats crisis. Now, of course, Natalie Elphick is is not a pleasant politician. She didn't mention the other way um, you could stop small boat crossings, which is to have safe routes. If you allowed people to apply for asylum in Britain in France at Calais, then obviously in a flash, no one would bother coming over in small boats. But that's obviously too humanitarian for her. She'd prefer just to go for British cops on French beaches. Ash, what is the thinking of these announcements? Well, it's, just a, it's a re-announcement of something that was already announced last year that didn't work last year and is a chance for Braverman to get a load of you know pictures taken for right-wing newspapers. But is it not a bit of a risk for them to keep putting forward stuff which isn't going to work? Well, let's go through why it's not going to work and then I'll tell you what the logic is because it's certainly not about proposing a pragmatic and effective or a humane solution. The reason why it's not going to work is that one of the reasons why you're seeing such an increase in small boats crossings is because there was a crackdown on freight, which means things like lorries, things like trains, um, you know, the Eurotunnel. These were all things which became monitored a lot more closely. There's a very good reason to monitor it more closely, and it's because there was a particularly tragic case where I believe it was a number of Vietnamese migrants who died in the back of a lorry. I think it was in Grey's Essex. These are really dangerous ways to cross, even if you're not making the journey in a dinghy in one of the busiest shipping lanes in the world. It's still incredibly risky, incredibly dangerous for people. But the crackdown approach just shifts the problem elsewhere. So the crackdown on lorries meant that there was an uptick in small boats crossings. And another reason why you've got people wanting to leave France for the UK is because they've been treated really appallingly by the French state. So many of the asylum seekers who make it over here report things like their belongings being confiscated and destroyed 
by French police. Things like tents and duvets and sleeping bags being destroyed, being forcibly and violently displaced and moved on from spot to spot. You've had number of asylum seekers who've said, hang on, I've been rough sleeping for a really long time around the French coast, being violently assaulted by police, you know, experiencing my mental, my physical health deteriorate. I may as well take a gamble on making the crossing over to the UK. So actually, the behavior of the French police has been a push factor when it comes to small boats crossings. It's not been something which has been able to prevent or deter the crossings in the first place. So this is just the pursuit of another failed policy because the thing which is actually going to stop people from getting into boats is actually having safe and legal means for people to claim asylum or indeed apply for other kinds of working visa and and to process those claims very quickly. One of the things that was really striking, I think this was in a tweet thread by uh, Leah Ippi, who's the uh, author whose background is is from Albania. One of the things she was saying is, look, I've lived in this country for nearly a decade and a half, and my own brother's never been able to come and visit, you know, not even when, you know, I was having a really difficult pregnancy. He couldn't come over and look after me. Why? It's because the home office refused him even a temporary tourist visa because it didn't matter that he had family and a job and a settled life in Albania. The disposition of the home office was, well, you know, Albanians can't be trusted. You'll abscond, you'll disappear into the gray economy. So it's not as if you've got all of these safe and legal and regulated routes for people to come here, whether that's to claim asylum or whether that's migration for other reasons. So this will be a policy that fails, but it's a win-win really politically for Suella Braverman and also for the French government. It's a win for Suella Braverman because one of the risks of banging the asylum system as broken drum is that you have labour say, well, who's been in charge for the last 12 years? That has been something which has been said again and again. Um, You also then, by kind of creating this spectacle, this pantomime, as you put it, it almost creates the sense of narrative closure. And what we know about, you know, political reporting in this country is that there's a real herd mentality and there's also a real failure to follow up and pursue stories amongst political journalists when they think that other people have moved on. So what this does is it creates the sense of narrative closure, which, yes, it's very expensive, narrative closure, but something that works for Suella Bravman. And I think it also neutralizes some of the attack lines which have been lobbed back and forth and have impacted governments on both sides of the channel, which is you fail to cooperate. So it's the illusion of cooperation. It's something which achieves particular political goals domestically. That's the whole purpose of this agreement. It's not actually to deal with the problem and the problem being that people are coming here through really dangerous means. Next story. Jeremy Corbyn has gone more than two years without the Labour whip. And according to The Guardian, there's now no chance he'll get it back. They write this, even if Corbyn does apologise, quote, unequivocally, unambiguously and without reservation, the leadership would be reluctant to let him return. One senior Labour figure said, quote, Jeremy Corbyn is never getting back in. 
it would be toxic to our chances of winning back some of the seats we need to win back. Up to now, Labour has said that Corbyn could regain the whip if he retracts and apologises for the comments he made following the EHRC report's release. So this would represent a big shift in the official party position. But is the source correct? This was Stephen Kinnock on Sky. I think that Keir has made it clear that uh, Jeremy's comments after the uh, report on anti-Semitism were not in line with our values, and he therefore had to remove the whip from Jeremy Corbyn. And um, if Jeremy and Keir uh, can come to an agreement whereby Jeremy apologises in the correct way for the comments that he made, then I'm sure that Keir would be open to having that conversation because Keir has said that himself. But Jeremy has made it clear that he's not going to apologise, and I think that that um, really leaves us in the situation that we're in. And the answer is no, he shouldn't be allowed to stand unless he apologises. I think there has to be a very clear and fulsome apology. Should be allowed to stand as Mayor of London? Well, if he's no longer a Labour MP, doesn't have the Labour whip, um, I, I guess Jeremy Corbyn is uh, a free agent and is able to, to do whatever he wants to do. But uh, I think what's absolutely clear is that we have an outstanding Mayor of London in Sadiq Khan. And, uh, you know, I'm, I, I'm sure that Sadiq would want to uh, look to the future and make sure that London is in the hands of a Labour mayor who's going to actually continue to deliver for the people of London. The statement Corbyn is being told to apologise for in the correct way was, of course, all true. But apparently the truth can sometimes be inconsistent with Labour values. The question about Corbyn's standing for mayor was a reference to this piece in the Mail on Sunday. So the article headlined, Labour fears Corbyn may humiliate Keir Starmer by taking on Sadiq Khan in London mayoral election as a left-wing independent candidate in 2024. And the article says this. One key Corbyn ally said last night that the former Labour MP, currently forced to sit in as independent MP, was so popular that he could emulate Mr Livingstone's success in 2000 and defeat current Labour mayor Sadiq Khan. That ally said, quote, Jeremy would win and plenty of people around him are urging him to do it. Ash, we've got a couple of issues to talk about here. Should he stand for mayor? I want to stick with the first one, though. Do you think it's likely he will be readmitted to the party? Have we learned something significant from this Guardian article? No, I mean, they are absolutely not going to admit him to the party because even if he did walk over broken glass and offered up one of his kidneys to Keir Starmer and go, I'm so sorry, I'll never do it again. I'll never actually say the truth about what happened um, in terms of the weaponization of racism in order to discredit uh, left leadership. He could do all of that and then suddenly it would be about NATO or suddenly it would be about trade unions or suddenly it would be about something else. Keir Starmer has no political incentive to readmit Jeremy Corbyn to the party. It would piss off a bunch of right-wing MPs and already you you have had the kind of negative briefing against Ed Miliband which has come from the right of the party you know you've you've got this real kind of sense that they want to just decimate whatever kind of soft left presence there is in the party program as much as having marginalized the left and you know Kistama can't can't afford to to piss them off. I think the balance of power in, inside the Parliamentary Labour Party means that he can't take on that fight and win, nor does he want to. He does not want to. He has broken every 
pledge he stood for as a leadership candidate. He has distanced himself from Corbyn to the point where you almost go, hang on, are you physically, literally the same man who, you know, was part of Corbyn's cabinet, who stood on a manifesto in 2019? And it was really clear that he'd been looking for a pretext to remove the whip. So no, he's not going to be readmitted to the party. And I think that who that's primarily unfair on, I mean, obviously it's hugely unfair to Jeremy Corbyn, but it's unfair to the people of Islington. So nobody, absolutely nobody thinks that Jeremy Corbyn is a bad constituency MP. And even his most implacable of political opponents have said he is somebody who loves his constituency, who sticks up for people, who is diligent and committed and dedicated. And the fact that Islington North has been robbed of the Labour MP that they voted for, are going to have to make a decision between an independent Jeremy Corbyn or a, you know, a, a Labour MP is deeply, deeply unfair on them. And it's undemocratic and it's total horseshit. I think there's the second point about the Mayor of London, which I think is really interesting because, you know, there are some things which are quite similar to the situation with Ken Livingston. You've got a left-wing politician with really great name recognition who's, you know, popular in London. And even though he's been demonized in the national press, that hasn't hasn't really, you know, affected how how people view him in in the city. So I think that those are some similarities. There's one really big difference, though. And the big difference is that Ken Livingston wasn't going up against a huge nationally recognised name who'd already been mayor of London. The Labour candidate in, you know, 2000, it was somebody who who was like a bit of a non-entity. So that would be the massive difference between Corbyn going for mayor of London and Ken Livingston having done it in the year 2000. I mean, it's it's interesting, isn't it? I was thinking about what would... Because, I mean, either if he stands... I think it's very unlikely he'll stand for Mayor of London, by the way, but I, I think it is very likely he'll stand as an independent for Islington North, and I think that'll be a genuinely competitive race. I mean, it'd be incredibly interesting. It's sort of like a political phenomenon. It could be one of the big stories of the next general election. But it will put lots of people in a bit of an awkward situation, because obviously, mm. the moment any left-wing MP even remotely suggests they're supporting Jeremy Corbyn's campaign, they will be out of the party. So, I mean, there, there are presumably some sort of right-wingers in, in HQ sort of licking their lips at the prospect of Jeremy Corbyn standing to be the MP for Islington North. And then, you know, John McDonnell or Diane Abbott sort of coming out in support and they say, finally, we have the pretext to, to kick out all of these mm. left-wing Labour MPs that we didn't want in the party anyway. Momentum is another big can of worms. What are they going to do? That was an organisation that was sort of created to support Jeremy Corbyn's politics within the Labour Party is there, is there just going to be this sort of code of silence when it comes to Islington North among all of these sort of, you know, MPs and official bodies? I mean, also, Labour HQ are going to be having a field day going through Twitter. Just any any left-wing Labour member who says anything remotely positive about Jeremy Corbyn, that would be their exclusion letter. So, Or has ever said anything positive about Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, look, I think I think the thing that is really important to point out is that there is no due process. There is absolutely no due process. If Labour HQ want to suspend somebody, expel somebody, bar them from, you know, running in a candidate selection, they will find an excuse to do it. They will find an excuse to do it. They'll be like, oh, you you said something nice about Jeremy Corbyn in 2017. It doesn't matter that your, you know, current leader served in his shadow cabinet. 
there are totally different standards being applied because there is a political project to marginalize, isolate and ultimately, and ultimately destroy the left. That's what they want to do. I think in, in terms of what is it that the people of Islington North deserve, they deserve the MP that they voted for, which was Jeremy Corbyn as a Labour MP in the Labour Party. And just to tell you how, how absurd it is, he's not sitting as a Labour MP, but he is an MP and a Labour member who is generally voting in line with the Labour Party. Like, that's what he's doing. And, and, and you know, it's because of Keir Starmer, some, you know, Alan Partridge-voiced lawyer saying, no, you can't be in our gang, that the people of Islington North aren't getting the MP who they voted for. I, I, I think that it's, it's profoundly undemocratic. And that's also why I don't think you should, you should trust this leadership when they say anything about democracy or, or, you know, what kind of democratic settlement we have. You know, look at the way they manage things within their own party. Look at the way they're managing things in Islington North. You know, Keir Starmer thinks that he knows better than all of the people who voted for Corbyn, you know, in every election that he stood in since, what, was it 1983? Let's go to our next story. Chancellor of the Exchequer, Jeremy Hunt, has appeared on Sky News, where Sophie Ridge asked him about the health of the NHS. I just want to have a look at the latest figures for A&E waiting times, um, because this really is um, pretty uh, stark. This is the number of people waiting more than 12 hours in A&E in uh, England. Uh, 43,000, I should say, 792 in October. I mean, Frankly, this doesn't look like a health service that can find efficiency savings. This looks like a health service that, you know, is on the brink of of collapse. There are massive pressures in the NHS. Obviously, it's something I know very well from uh, previous jobs I've done. And I think that doctors, nurses on the front line are frankly under unbearable pressure. So I I do recognise the picture you say. Um, It's also true that there is a lot of money going to the NHS. and, And they would be the first to say that in a context where funding for the NHS is going up, we need to do everything we can to find efficiencies. But if you're saying to me the NHS is in a very, very tricky situation, I agree. And you know, I care passionately about the NHS. I've spent more time thinking about the NHS than any other public service in my time in Parliament. And we need the NHS to help us get out of the economic difficulties we're in because, as you'll see in other parts of the Sunday papers, we've got a big increase in the number of people who aren't working, aren't taking part in work, even though they perhaps could. And sometimes that's as a result of long-term sickness. So the NHS is part of the solution, as well as facing some very big problems. Jeremy Hunt did say something true there. He has thought a lot about the NHS. But that's only because he spent such a long time ruining it. Hunt was health secretary for six years between 2012 and 2018. He served under both David Cameron and Theresa May, becoming the longest serving health secretary in British history. He was also the one who inflicted the most damage on Britain's hospitals, patients and health workers. Let's start with A&E waiting time. So this graph shows the percentage of patients seen by English A&E departments within four hours of arrival. NHS rules state that 95% of patients attending A&E should be seen within that time. When Hunt took over in September 2012, NHS England was bang on target. But by the time he left in July 2018, it had dropped to around 85%. That translates to three times more people waiting for more than four hours when he left office than when he started. As you can see, things have only continued along the downward trend 
ever since. Now, Hunt, of course, was aware at the time that this didn't look good. But with the obvious solutions off the table, like paying doctors and nurses properly, Hunt came up with more novel solutions. The Guardian reported this in 2017. Jeremy Hunt considers barring walk-in patients from A&E. Now, the article goes on to say this. Dr. Helen Thomas, NHS England's National Medical Advisor for Integrated Urgent Care, said the Health Secretary was considering testing the data. Jeremy Hunt has mentioned to some of my colleagues, maybe we should have a talk before you walk, and we may well pilot that. Thomas told a conference, according to a recording released by the Doctor's magazine, Pulse. Thomas admitted that even piloting the idea was a hot potato, but said early discussions had been held. I think it's been done in other countries where they've actually said you can't come into emergency departments until you've talked on referral, or you have to have that sort of docket that you're given by having talked on the phone that you do need to come to the emergency department. Of course, A&E waiting lists aren't the only measure of how the NHS is coping. In 2019, an Open Democracy article reported this. During Hunt's tenure as health secretary, the number of hospital beds, already low compared with those in most developed countries, dropped significantly from 135,000 beds in the quarter that Hunt took over to 127,000 when he left, a loss of over 8,000 beds. Bed occupancy rates over 85% are considered overcrowding and increased infection risks, cancelled operations and pressure on nurses. They peaked at record levels of over 90% in Hunt's last winter, and this was an average, with some hospitals repeatedly hitting 100%. Other targets, notably cancel referral times and waiting times for planned operations, also went from being comfortably exceeded to being missed every month under Hunt's watch. So those are problems that you can't solve by setting up a screening call centre. I don't think that's a very good idea for A&E as well, which is presumably why we haven't done it. Now, to mask the deterioration of the health service. Hunt wasn't averse to telling the odd whopper. This headline is from The Independent in October 2017. Jeremy Hunt forced a U-turn on mental health figures after making false claim to Parliament. The article went on to report this. In a statement on World Mental Health Day, Mr. Hunt told MPs, quote, we've got 30,000 more people working in mental health today than we had when Labour left office. He later repeated the claim, saying, quote, we have 30,000 more professionals working in mental health than when my government came into office. It subsequently emerged that he had inflated the actual number by around 43 times. And that wasn't the only time Hunt struggled with numbers. In 2015, he posted this on social media. We want 5,000 more GPs by 2020, the biggest chance for more investment in a generation, which will help deliver seven-day services. Hashtag GP New Deal. By the time Hunt left office three years later, he hadn't quite managed that figure because there were just 162 more GPs in the NHS. So missing that by quite the margin. Now, as for privatisation, well, Hunt loved that. So during his tenure, Hunt awarded £2 billion worth of NHS contracts to Virgin Care. And by 2018, Hunt had overseen a 57% rise in the amount of NHS funding being diverted to private firms. That included giving £12.5 million to a private US hospital to teach NHS hospitals how to raise their standards, only for it to fail its, safely in its safety inspection a few months later. But that was just Hunt being consistent because in 2005, he wrote a book with Kwasi Kwarteng and Michael Gove, amongst others, called Direct Democracy, an Agenda for a New Model Party. The book contained this from Hunt. Um, so he wrote, our ambition should be to break down the barriers between private and public provision, in effect, denationalizing the provision of healthcare in Britain. Um, so that's what he wrote before he became health secretary. So we did have warning. However, while adept, while Hunt was adept 
at keeping business on side, he had the opposite effect on the medical profession. In 2015, Hunt tried to change the contract for junior doctors by increasing their working hours without increasing their pay. The BMA, the doctors' union, said it threatened patient safety, but Hunt was inflexible, forcing junior doctors to strike. We're because we want to send a message to Jeremy Hunt that these junior doctor contracts are not fair and they're not safe and they're yeah they're gonna dismount they're gonna be the beginning of the end of the NHS. We're here because the changes are unrealistic and it's gonna cause like danger to patient welfare basically. The new contract doesn't have um, the, the safeguards in place that we currently have and you wouldn't expect airline pilots to be flying without, um, without checks to make sure that they're safe so why would why should doctors not have the chance to have a contract that is safe and fair? You just read this. That, that says everything, really, about how hard you have to work to be a junior doctor and how you should be rewarded and how you should have a safe contract. It's more about the safety, the antisocial hours and the payment, absolutely, as well. I mean, we all need to make a living as well. Um, we all have, you know, dependents and mortgages and that sort of stuff to pay. Um, the fact that now working at sort of like 10 p.m. on a Saturday is going to be the same as working like 3 p.m. on a Tuesday, you know, I, I don't agree with. Uh, there are many public sectors of workers across the country in different jobs who work exceptionally hard. And included within that is doctors. And to be expected to work more hours for less money is not fair either. When negotiations failed, Hunt just imposed the new contract anyway, which led to half of junior doctors leaving the NHS after finishing their foundation programme in 2015. Now people wonder why the service has a staffing crisis. Having said all this, we should be fair to Hunt. In his defence, the Tories have proved perfectly adept at destroying the NHS even without him in office, and every metric he made worse has got even worse since he left the health department. 12 years of consistently assaulting the health service has caused such damage that the centrist general secretary of Unison, Christine McEnay, posed a radical theory during this exchange with Sophie Ridge. The uh, latest figures uh, that we uh, showed to Jeremy Hunt on any waiting time show a uh, record number of people waiting more than four hours and the number of waiting more than 12 hours was up 30%, almost 44,000. What kind of impact could spending restraint have on the NHS? Could it be dangerous? Of course it could. And what we, I mean, you've just said it yourself there, um, waiting lists are at an all-time high. We've got um, the biggest, the highest level of public dissatisfaction with the NHS since it started. We've got 135,000 vacancies in the NHS. Uh, you know, people are waiting in ambulances outside hospitals for five, six, seven, as, as long as 10 hours. So you're basically using ambulances as another room of the hospital, which is not very an efficient use of, of, of ambulances. And this will have an impact, it's already having an impact on British people and it will just only get worse. You know, when I hear politicians talk about, you know, difficult choices to be made, of course that's true. Uh, but there's also difficult choices, well, difficult things will happen if we don't make the right choices and if they don't make the right choices. And one of those will be, the NHS is, is almost ready to collapse. And uh, excuse me for sounding like a conspiracy theorist, but I've heard so many people say it now. Is this a, a partly a deliberate attempt by government to run down the NHS in order to turn around and say we'll have to bring in some private organisation to run it? Now, I hope that's not, and a bit of me thinks that's not what they're doing, but what they're not doing is taking the right choices about investing in our public services.
Ash, I want your opinion here. What should the public make of Jeremy Hunt going on TV pretending he's some champion of the National Health Service? I think they should take their TVs and throw them out the window. <laughs> I mean, it's beyond insulting. We've talked a lot about how the Conservatives in reinventing themselves in office have been both arsonist and firefighter. So they drive the country into a wall, defenestrate the leadership and then say, oh yeah, we're going to fix it. So that was the story of Theresa May. That was the story of Boris Johnson. That was the story of Liz Truss. And now that's the story of Rishi Sunak. What we're seeing after 12 years is that now the same individuals are coming in, like the very same individuals who created some absolutely catastrophic problems for our public services are coming back in and saying, well, you should trust me to be a responsible custodian for them now. I mean, Jeremy Hunt's handling of the NHS over his time as health secretary created some really expensive problems for us. So scrapping the nurses bursary has meant that we have a shortage of nurses. The treatment of junior doctors meant that taxpayer money has gone towards training doctors but now isn't going towards retaining them so that, you know, we, we've kept them for the rest of their working lives and decent contracts and good conditions, which are, you know, equitable for them and also safe for patients. The false economy of austerity is that you've got savings in any given tax year, but costs which are being deferred later down the line and which are ballooning because the problems are so so expensive to resolve. And so I think that Jeremy Hunt is now playing a bit of this game of saying, okay, well, the spending cuts won't really kick in until after the next general election. And, you know, we discussed this last week in terms of being an effective political tool, which buys them a bit of time and creates a bit of pressure for Labour. But I think there's a really fundamental question here about how Jeremy Hunt is being presented by our media, you know, I heard him sort of introduced by Laura Koonsberg as, you know, he's meant to be a sort of sensible, responsible one. Well, how sensible or responsible was it to oversee an exodus of NHS staff without a plan of how to replace them? How sensible was it to look at the findings of Operation Cygnus, which modeled a respiratory disease-based pandemic, and then not take on any of the recommendations or heed any of the warnings? You know, that was Jeremy Hunt as health secretary. He's proved himself totally unfit to hold high office ever again. And it's only because the lot that have followed him have managed to be even more incompetent that he starts to look like a good option. You know, the same way that a plate of rotting meat looks like a more appetizing meal than literal dog shit. I mean, this shouldn't actually be an option for what you have for dinner. I like Jeremy Hunt as a plate of rotting meat. Who after him was the dog? Turd. I suppose that whoever was health secretary after him, forgettable. I don't think anyone's done it for a particularly long period of time since him. Ash, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Been a pleasure as always. Thank you for having me. And we will wrap up there. Thanks for tuning in this evening. We'll be back on Wednesday at 7 pm. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com/support.